AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. And you know what I'm obsessed with. I'm obsessed with the science of love. Yes, there is a science to it. Like everything else in life, there's a bio-psycho-social impact, effect, peace, aspect. (laughs) I'll get the right word. I'm not warmed up yet. You know, one of the things, when I think about relationships, it's really easy to figure out, you know, what people are doing wrong. And there's a lot of research on what people do wrong, right, that affects their communication, that affects their um, conflict resolution skills, that affects their sex life. But I like to focus on the strong relationships, the resilient relationships, And I get really excited when I find research on this idea of resiliency. And I'd rather look at healthy relationships and figure out how to do it right than just focus on what doesn't work. So there is this research on long-term, committed, mostly happy relationships. Well, a couple of things I want to say. First of all, you know, happy people tend to have happy relationships, right? So it's an inside job. It's about doing the work on yourself first. But there is also this crazy notion out there that if you can just find the right partner, the right person, and so people have this laundry list of deal breakers, right? If he doesn't have this, if she doesn't have that, then I can't go out with them, then I can't marry them, or I should have known that going in. But actually, the research looks another direction, that relationships are way more about skill than luck. And that couples who do well in the long term tend to be those that help each other grow. I've always said that a relationship is over when one or both partners stop growing, when the relationship becomes stagnant. People just grow apart. They look for excitement somewhere else if the relationship becomes stagnant. Stagnant. So what is it that creates this kind of, you know, friendly friction that helps you grow? Well, there is a distinct relationship cycle that all relationships go through if they're long-term and healthy. And you have to be able to weather all sides of the cycle. And the cycle is this. First of all, a period of smooth running. We all know that. It happens when you first meet, when you're dating, uh, when you're both healthy, when you've got good jobs, there's no big financial problems. You have these times of smooth running. Great. But the problem is you shouldn't expect that the smooth running is going to last forever. Couples who last a really long time are resilient and they fight to love. They fight to love. So the next thing that comes up is some kind of rupture. Okay, a rupture could be, um, you know, somebody is not pulling their weight around the house. Somebody's not communicating well. Somebody's not being a good listener. Uh, Sometimes you're just bored. I mean, it's like, He used to wear clothes, and now he's just in gym shorts all the time and sneakers, right? Sometimes it's something that causes a rupture, and then it's time to bring it up. Well, I want to tell you this, that ruptures are necessary to continue to grow intimacy, and in a rupture is the passion and the clash that brings out the feeling. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, really damaging fights and conflicts that involve name-calling or the silent treatment or just awful things. I'm talking about a little bit of juice, a little bit of friction, a little bit of, hey, 
you didn't. And why, why haven't you? And what's going on here? Right? And that feeling, that little passion, the ability to interact in a conflictual way with someone you love is actually the glue and the spice that makes your relationship worthwhile because it's the thing that's going to help you grow if, if you're able to endure the third stage. So we got smooth sailing followed by some kind of rupture, but the most important work happens in the repair stage. And in the repair stage, when everybody's cooled off, is when you get to say the magic words in every relationship, I'm sorry, and you get to see your partner's vulnerabilities. You get to see them as a human being. And when you do this phase right, it actually increases commitment. It builds trust between each other. And you will find that all long-term relationships go through the cycle. Harmony, rupture, repair, they just follow this cycle. Now, if you grew up in a family that avoided conflict, that squelched your emotions, I'll admit it. I, I was told to go to my room and come back when I had changed my attitude. <laughs> That's where emotions were allowed to go. Off to isolated isolation in a closed room. If you grew up in a family that discouraged meaningful conversation, then you are at greatest risk for avoiding or squelching healthy rupture in your relationship. You'll also be unable to initiate, initiate, and even tolerate that meaningful conversation. I'm not going to lie to you. Relationships are about warm fuzzies and cold pricklies. And it's really easy for your stomach to bubble with those feelings of shame because you don't want to have a particular conversation or because you're unable to admit that "Mm, maybe you were wrong. Maybe you were a bit unconscious. Maybe you forgot to put your relationship first. So I want you to know that if you are arguing, This is not a sign of an unhealthy relationship. People will say, well, we're always fighting. We're always bickering. We're always fighting. And my answer is, what are you doing to repair? And does the repair happen in that cycle? So if you've got smooth sailing, followed by ruptures, and followed by healthy repair, talking it all out, then this is a cycle that's going to continue. Now, hopefully... After decades or so, the smooth sailing parts might stretch out, but don't let it go into boredom. Don't let it go into boredom. Push each other. Make each other see the light. You have to have a little bit of friction to keep the relationship exciting. And I will add, there are some couples out there who love to argue because they have the best makeup sex. Just want to say (laughs) that some people, that's their relationship style. It adds a little bit of punch to their relationship. One of the other things that healthy couples do, and this is another sign of resilience, is even in the darkest days, even when they're looking at their partner and they're like, why did I marry this person again? Have I lost my mind? There is a piece of them, their intellectual mind, not their emotional mind, that remembers that good times will come back, that remembers the good times from before, that actually focuses on the reason why they fell in love that per- with that person. 
And actually taking your brain, remember, I always say this, the brain doesn't know the difference between imagination and reality. So if you imagine that your partner is absolutely fabulous and you remember why you fell in love with them, that will sustain and hold you and keep your negative emotions in check until you can get to that repair stage. All right? Smooth sailing, a rupture, followed by repair. I talk a lot about resiliency. And I teach health psychology at Cal State Channel Islands. And resiliency is something that's known a lot in health psychology. It's this ability to just endure, get through, and not be heavily damaged. It's partly genetic, but it's also learned. My next guest was actually a survivor of a Nazi concentration camp. And she has spent her life talking about resiliency and how to continue to grow. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. And do you know what is love to me? I think I have just fallen in love with the guest who walked into my studio. And I am thrilled to have her here. Dr. Erica Miller is a psychotherapist who has spent her life helping people through their mental health issues, owning a series of uh, mental health clinics, and as author of three books. But what I was interested to talk to her about, and first of all, welcome, Dr. Miller. Good to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. Be nice and close to the mic so we can hear every word. All right. First of all, I have to tell you. But I have an accent, so hopefully I'll be very clear and slow. Oh, it's a gorgeous accent. You know, it sounds like it's from Eastern Europe where uh, our president would probably love to date you. Uh, right, right. But I'm so sorry. I don't want to go into politics. He's not my type. I just joking. Me. Right. He's not your type. Um, so Dr. Erica Miller just informed me that she is 85 years old. I forgot to do the math. Uh, she is a Holocaust survivor who was sent to the camps during her most formative years, age 7 through 11. Is that right? And came out a positive person who preaches resiliency. And I thought, I need to get this woman on the show because she's a model for all of us. So let me first ask you this. Um, How did you come to a place of resiliency after so much horror and trauma as a child? I'm I'm absolutely so grateful that I was able to because my sister, five years older than me, she was beaten down all her life. No respect from her husband, from her kids. Uh, my mother had nightmares at the end of her life. The Gestapo walking at night. And to me, uh, this little kid, this little seven-year-old kid, you saw I gave you the book, mm-hmm. my papa and me walking. It's like uh, I was... I was telling you, I was asking questions. I could not understand what goes on there. I kind of wanted to go and help. It just, it defied any logic, the atrocities that I witnessed. So I just went the route. I stiffened up my lip and I, I, I had my mother's hand over my mouth so I don't give a, me away because they would have killed me. You know, anybody that saw Schindler's List, I mean, the same, the trains and all that kind of thing. You even witnessed your father being beaten. I mean, I mean, this story, and I really do not push my book for the money. Please uh, understand it. But yeah, my life story, 
the the uh, atrocities of people, but also the kindness. So I have both, and I have so many stories. I don't want to go all over the place. But let's talk about resiliency. Do you think resiliency is mostly genetic? You mentioned your sister has suffered and your mother has suffered. Was there something different genetically with you, or is it some thought process that you had? Uh, There must be. There must be something in the genes. Absolutely must. And uh, I'm a researcher, and yeah, 80%, which is a lot, is life choices. But 20% is the makeup, the traits we come with, which is a lot. We are not our genes. But when I was, when my sister was crying, when my mother was whatever, and I stiffened up, I hold, I didn't cry. I had to be strong for mama. I was seven years old. So clearly, I did not learn it from the environment. So resilience, and when I say lucky to be an American, lucky to be me, is I have that part, that trait, that it's not only am I not a victim, I'm victorious. I lived my life like passion and crazy because of it. Let me say, you brought up my favorite pet peeve word, which is victim. I think one of the biggest ills we have in our society right now is the fact that so many people consider themselves to be victims during a time of no war, greatest affluence, a greatest health. It's amazing. How do you respond to these people? You know what? Again, unless you're dying, it's unimportant. Move on. How lucky you are. Uh, I was a tough mother to have. I have two kids and five grandkids. Unless you're dying, you go to school. It is like, (laughs) poor me. And again, I share. I empower. I share my life, not to brag, just to share. That it's like, life doesn't owe you anything. Life is in a, a journey. And we are not dinosaurs. Resiliency being... I pick myself up and I do it. You can too. In my second book, as you know, don't tell me I cannot do it. Living audaciously in the here and now. So that kind of poor me. My 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 parents were poor, whatever. It's it's like you are in the moment and you have resources and you're not in Saudi Arabia, although Saudi Arabia is a little bit better right now. You know what? But not necessarily for women. Not necessarily. A little bit bad. They're driving already. It's kind of, <laughs> Okay, they're coming up a little She's bit. She's so positive. I love her. <laughs> I'm telling you, and I'm not in La La Land. The attractiveness about me is my energy and my positivism, which is also, I think, the gratefulness to just be alive uh, because I'm surrounded by death. When I was in the camp for four years, a little tiny window, we buried about 20 people. You know, that's my big story. But I was intrigued with those dead people laying on the floors. We were jumping, our children, we were, you have to do something in four years. I don't remember their faces, but we used to play. And what do you play when you're in camp? You jump over the dead bobbies and make sure that you don't touch them. Or when I looked out the window every morning, they went to pick up the bodies laying there. And I remember clearly, my memories is shot, that the trauma does a little bit, just flashes. I thought, they're so ugly. They're just laying there. Maybe I will be there tomorrow, but I don't want to die ugly. Maybe I can pose. And guess what? I'm still posing. I still want to be pretty. So, yeah. You, no. And you are pretty. I'm Thank so sorry. You. With the confines of radio that we have to wrap this up, Dr. Erica Miller, I want everyone to know that she has three fabulous books out. The one I think you all should read is the Dr. Erica Miller story 
from trauma to triumph or have her come speak at your event. This woman is an inspiration. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's so much fun. Can we not go on and on? I know. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Good to see you. You've been listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news and I'll be right back. By AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. This is a busy day because I have a lot of guests. And generally, as you know, you get a lot of me. I love to talk and I love to explain the various dynamics about all our relationships and psychology. Um, but today it just lucked out that three important people that we wanted to have on the show were all available today. So, Joey, good booking. Although I'm promised next week, no guests. It's just going to be me talking for two hours until you're sick of me. Um, I did want to talk about Earth Day. So last week I was at an event called Patau. Look it up. It's, I don't know exactly what it is, but it started by Tony Hawk 10 years ago. And it's a bunch of CEOs from all over the world who are trying to plan the future. And I'm at lunch and it was very hot up in the Ojai Valley. And uh, I'm talking with a gentleman beside me at lunch about uh, recycling and uh, composting. And then I find out, dude is like... uh, senior research scientist at Yale University School of Forestry and Environmental Sciences and director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. So he actually knew what he was talking about. Then we got into an even more interesting conversation about what really changes our behavior. So let me, without further ado, thank and invite in Dr. Anthony Leiserwitz. Hi, Anthony. How are you? I'm great. Great to be with you, Wendy. I I wish you were here in the studio because there's so much (laughs) we need to talk about. Um, so Earth Day, just to give an introduction, started back in 1970, and that's when 20 million Americans hit the streets, uh, claiming that we need to start saving the planet. And since then, global wildlife populations have declined by 58%, and one in five of the planet's plant species faces a threat of extinction. I will just add, uh, cannabis is not included in that plant population because <laughs> it's being planted very well out here in California. Um, so, Anthony, is climate change real? And if so, what's the evidence? Yeah, unfortunately, I have to say climate change is real. And uh, we know this, of course, from uh, actually science going back over 100 years. Uh, it was first identified uh, back in the 1800s by a guy named John Tyndall and has uh, just uh, been proven again and again ever since. And really, it's very, very simple. Uh, when we do things like burn fossil fuels or cut down and burn trees or other plants, it releases carbon dioxide, okay, that that little gas we all know about. Mm -hmm. Uh, It goes up into the atmosphere, and when it gets thick, when when we add too much of it to the atmosphere, it it serves like a blanket that basically traps heat close to the Earth's surface. Uh, And, in fact, it's a critical uh, function of life itself. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the existence of things like greenhouse gases in the atmosphere keeping the Earth warmer than it would be otherwise. The trouble is, though, when you get too much of it, it starts trapping more and more heat, turning the entire planet hotter and hotter. And then that has all kinds of negative consequences. Well, I have some evidence that just is very simple. I moved to the beach in California 30 years ago from Canada, and I was like, Mm. oh, thank God I'm here. The sun, it's warm, it's fabulous. And I joined a house of roommates, a bunch of women, answered an ad, and we shared a house on the beach. 
And what, the roommate who was moving out, whose place I was taking, I said, why are you leaving? And she said, it's just too cold here at the beach, and I really want to move someplace more tropical because I just can't stand the cold. Of course, I thought she was nuts because my reference was Canada and seven months of heavy snow, but I was like, okay. And then I realized she was right, that for most of the year at the, along the Pacific Ocean, we wear heavy sweatsuits out on that beach, and it is very cold. Now... I noticed that all my neighbors are getting these big, honking, ugly air conditioning units installed to the top of their houses, which you never saw 30 years ago because it was never hot enough at the beach. So it's real. Yes, and we're seeing that, of course, not just in California, but all across the United States and around the world. Um, And it's not just rising temperatures, of course. It's also rising sea levels. It's changes in weather patterns. So you're getting more intense and more extreme uh, weather events of all kinds. So there's a lot uh, that's already happened, and unfortunately, unless we change the path we're on, it's going to get much, much worse. Can I ask a dumb question? Why do some people believe that climate change isn't real? Well, so there are a couple different answers. Uh, One set of people just simply don't know that much about it. Um, And in fact, a lot of people really don't know that much about the details of of the issue. And, you know, first thing you can do is to uh, teach yourself. You know, go. it's not hard. We all can go online and and look at a report. Um, reputable source and learn a bit. But on the other hand, there are those, and we all know who they are, that we've uh, called the dismissive. And there are people who are firmly convinced it's not happening, it's not human cause, it's not a serious problem. And what's usually going on there, even though they often like to uh, argue about the science, what's usually going on is that it's a deep struggle over values. Many of these people are uh, have, let's say, libertarian viewpoints, okay? They don't trust government. They really think the government's too big, it's too intrusive, there's too much regulation, there's too much taxation. And the problem is, is that the main solutions they've heard in reference to climate change have come from people like Al Gore. And if you don't like Al Gore, then immediately you're... Uh, you're, you're going to close very, your ears, right? You're going to close your ears. Uh, and when you hear big about solutions that are essentially about the government regulating companies and, and uh, you know, fuel efficiency standards and, and so on and so forth, many people from that worldview just go, ah, oh, I hate government, therefore I don't want to believe that this problem's even real. Well, last time I uh, checked, the government wasn't doing my recycling for me. I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> so I want to talk about two other things, though. Of course. Um, first of all, the information that you tell me is not actually going to change my behavior. What we should be doing. And then after, I want to talk about human motivation and the things that actually will change people's behavior. So can you hang in there? We're going to go to commercial break. And when I come back, let's talk about these two things, what we should be doing and how we're going to change our behavior. I'm talking with Dr. Anthony Leiserwitz, and he is the director of the Yale University Program on Climate Change Communication. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. Oh, help me, please, doctor, I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. Coming up later in the show, I have a guest who is a very brave author who has written a book about her recovery from her addiction to pornography. Rare for women. And so I'm really excited and interested to meet her. Um, But before we get there, we are still talking about our relationship with the planet. And yes, I'm going to be preaching a little bit. 
uh, my guest, director of the Yale University Program on Climate Change Communication, Dr. Anthony Lizerwitz. Hi, Anthony. How are you? I'm great. Okay. So what should we be doing more? We need to lecture. <laughs> no, it's not a lecture. <laughs> the, the thing is, is that there are so many things that we can do that in the end are not about eating your spinach and doing things that aren't comfortable. This is about doing things that actually usually improve your life. So, and, and in fact, save you money in the end. So, I mean, did you know, for example, that when people switch uh, just their light bulbs, okay, those old incandescent bulbs, which I know California has been leading on, mm-hmm. just the LEDs, you basically cut 80% of your energy use and your energy bill. You can't even find that. the old-fashioned light bulbs at Home Depot anymore, just to let you know, because I tried to find one for something and I couldn't. And that's a great example of how citizens actually came together, and that was one of the things they demanded out of their government. California, believe it or not, is one of the world leaders when it comes to saving energy. And that's really a testament to the people of California. Well, here's one, you know, you said there's a payoff for us if we do something good. So when my kids were little, I had this au pair from Canada, and she had been a chemistry major in school. And she told me about what happens in the landfill if food, decomposing food, is mixed with plastic, that it creates these gases and it's so dangerous and blah, blah, blah. So she taught me how to, like, separate out, rinse off everything. I have a little compost. You know the green bins that the city says for the gardeners to put the leaves in? You can put food products in there as long as it's vegetables. So I scrape the plates into that. I do everything separately. And here's the payoff for me. My trash doesn't stink. And I don't have to take it out very often because there's not much in there. It's the best. That's right. And what we often don't realize is that the average American basically wastes 40% of the food they buy. So just think of that. When you go to the grocery store and you buy five uh, shopping bags full of food, it's like on your way home, you just throw two of them out the window. Um, All of that extra food ends up usually in the landfill where it decomposes and turns into, in particular, a gas called methane. And methane is a really potent global warming gas. So just one of the most simple things we can do is simply uh, change the way we eat so we don't end up throwing so much of it into the trash. Yes, let us not waste smaller portions. And there's very little to get rid of in that case. Or if you are going to have extra scraps, turn it into compost so it comes back as vegetables. <laughs> All right. So we know what we should be doing. We should be recycling, separating our glass and our plastic and our paper and our metal and putting it in those nice blue bins that the city gives us. Um, but we've all know this. We've been told this over and over and over. This information isn't the thing that actually creates behavioral change. What works better? Well, it turns out that people are different and they have different kinds of motivations. So what we know is that the most common reason why Americans say they want to reduce global warming is, first of all, uh, rooted in family values, uh, that they want to provide a better life for our kids and our grandkids. Um, That really is a primary motivation for, for lots of people. But beyond that, then there are those people that are doing it not because of their own kids, but because they care about the environment more broadly, other species, other habitats, the places that we love to go, like our national parks. And then another group of people are doing it because they say, look, this is really about protecting God's creation. So they're coming in at this time very much rooted in their own religious values. Those are three very different motivations, and they're all totally appropriate. Uh, If they get you to start thinking about what can I do? 
What about social modeling, celebrities? Could celebrities be talking more about this kind of stuff, and uh, does that change behavior? So celebrities is an interesting one because celebrities are kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, celebrities are great at getting people's attention, right, and getting Mm -hmm. us to be aware. So when a celebrity speaks, and speaks with some knowledge, by the way, Mm -hmm. uh, it can be very helpful in getting all their fans and all the people that pay attention to them to learn about this problem and say, hey, this is real, and here's some simple things I can do. Mm-hmm. The problem, though, is that most people aren't ultimately motivated by just the example of a celebrity. We're actually far more influenced by the behavior of the people around us. It's our own friends, our own family, our own coworkers, the other people we see in our, reg- in our neighborhood, and what they do that often influences us because we all like to basically fit in. I remember when I met you, we had that conversation about the signs that exist in hotel bathrooms that give a clear percentage. Like I stayed in a hotel in Dallas a few weeks ago and it said, you know, 78% of the people who've stayed in this room have hung their towel up and saved water by not having us wash it or whatever. Um, Why does that work? Because as Aristotle said many thousands of years ago, human beings are social animals. We, we pay very close attention to what other people around us do, and, uh, and of course, we gain a lot of status by being a leader and being seen as a leader uh, within our own community. So, uh, you know, it, it, for a long-standing set of reasons, uh, you know, if you go back to our, you know, even our Stone Age past when we were in small groups, it really was a great survival technique to be able to look around and see what other people are doing and saying, hey, nobody's eating that red berry on that bush over there. I'm not going to eat it either because it could be poisonous, right? So it doesn't, doesn't the, do you a lot of good to be the one that takes the risk. Besides that it's appropriate to have Dr. Anthony Lizerwitz here on Earth Day, I have an ulterior motive. The real reason I want you here is because I need you to answer this question for me. In my back alley, as people walk to Venice Beach, I have a big blue recycling thing. They throw any bit of trash they have in their hands in it. And I go in and have to divide it all myself. Yes, I'm one of those crotchety old landladies who goes down with my rubber gloves and divides up my stuff because other people have put trash in there. So what sign should I put on that? Smart people only put plastic and paper here? Or what do I put? I don't have an immediate answer for that, but I do know that there have been some really interesting ways to try to make... Uh, uh, anti-littering campaigns fun. So, for example, someone has come up with a trash can that has a little sound device and a motion detector inside of it. Mm-hmm. And so when someone puts a piece of trash in the trash receptacle, you hear the sound of this of that object going... <laughs> like it hits at the end of a deep of a... at the bottom of a very deep well. And it's so surprising that what they have found is that when they put one of those in a public park, people will start running all over the park, grabbing pieces of litter, putting them in. So to they keep can trying. To okay. see what's going on. We have to wrap, but I just thought of the sign. I live in Southern California. People care about what they look like. They're on the way to the beach in a bikini. My sign is going to say, only hot, good-looking people separate their trash. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being with us, Dr. Lizerwitz. Good to talk to you. Keep in touch. Thank you. Happy Earth Day. Thank you. Happy Earth Day. You're listening to KFI AM 640. This is a Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. When I come back, a woman who has recovered from a porn addiction. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. 
KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. And I know you waited out all that Earth Day nonsense so you could get to the porn addict, didn't you? I know you were. I I would too. I'd be sitting in my car going, I am not getting out of the car till I meet the woman. Woman who says she was addicted to porn. Okay, I'm, I'm being really salacious here. Um, before I introduce my guest, I just want to say something about pornography. I am divided on how I feel about pornography. I don't think, though, that too much of anything is good for a developing mind. Let me just say that. Um, If you look at statistics on how high the porn use is, you find these two groups on the Internet spouting statistics. One are the far-right, anti-porn, often religious folks who act like it is the biggest scourge on our society and the use is so high it's infecting everybody and everywhere. The other side is you get like this the statistics given by the porn sites like Pornhub. They give out statistics all the time. And of course, they say porn use is just so high and enormous because they want to normalize it. And in fact, their latest statistic talked about how many women are using porn now finally because they want to expand their market to more women. They need to normalize it. So I don't trust any of those stats. Um, I did turn to the American Psychological Association and they seem a little more balanced Um, basically stating that some pornography use can be very helpful in relationships. And indeed, that not only can erotica enhance sex lives, um, but also watching porn can be a safer recreational outlet for people who might be thinking about sexual assault. I mean, they use the example of when pornography was legalized in Denmark, uh, researchers reported a corresponding decline in sexual aggression. So there's some good to it. The downside is that if you look at some of the statistics, they say about 9% of the people who use porn say they cannot stop. And with that, I want to tell you, I read this amazing article uh, in Time magazine about a young author named Erica Garza. Welcome, Erica. Who uh, went through quite a journey. Her book is called Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Nice and close to the mic, please. We want to catch your voice. Um, So how did it start, first of all? So it started in a really ordinary way. I started watching porn when I was 12. Yeah, we want to stop here and just say that the average age most kids, you think your kids aren't seeing it, see porn is about 11. Right. Right. And what made you look for it at the beginning? Oh, just curiosity. And it was a much different time then because it was late. It was early 90s, excuse me. And so I didn't have hardcore Internet porn the way kids have access to that now. And that scares me to think if I did have access, what what would have become of my addiction? Um, But it started really mildly with softcore porn on late night cable TV and kind of showtime ish. Yeah, it was Cinemax. <laughs> right, Cinemax. <laughs> and it was very exciting, and I wanted to watch it all the time. Um, but nobody in my family had ever talked about sex before, and I'd never heard other girls talking about sex or masturbation or porn. So I had no idea what I'd stumbled across. All I knew was that I liked it, and I wanted to keep watching it. And I think that that's really ordinary for a 12-year-old, 13-year-old kid to be going through. Mm-hmm. Um, but what switched... I went through the Harlequin romance phase, so okay. all my porn was in my head. We didn't okay. have the visuals. <laughs> Still exciting. Yeah. But what changed it for me was not long after those discoveries, I was um, diagnosed with scoliosis, and I had to wear a back brace for two years. And I started to feel really insecure and self-conscious, 
and afraid of social rejection. And so and this I is middle would, school, middle school. And I was afraid of kids making fun of me. And they did make fun of me no matter how much I tried to not get attention drawn to me. And so I turned to porn and I turned to masturbating because I'd done those things and I liked those things. And when I was trying to achieve orgasm, when I was caught up in that world watching those things, I could get a break from all the big scary feelings that I that aroused in me when I was being picked on or when I was thinking about what my body looked like to other people. It was just an escape route. And I came to rely on porn as an escape route going forward, even when I eventually got the brace removed. It had already become a crutch for me. And as you got older, did it impact your adult romantic relationships? It did. So I came to rely on a certain kind of sexual um, outlet. It wasn't just pleasure. I had to have this aspect of shame attached to it because Mm. from the beginning when I discovered these things, masturbation and porn, I felt really guilty about it and ashamed because nobody was talking about this. So I had nothing to reference to say that what I was going through was okay and it was okay to explore my body. There was nothing for me to turn to. And so I immediately assumed, also I should mention I was raised Catholic. So that yeah, I was going to say, you know, there's a lot of shame comorbid with us Catholics, okay? Why do you think Catholic girls have so much fun? Um, the word <laughs> no is the world's biggest aphrodisiac. I swear to God. So as soon as parents say, no, 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 we won't even talk about it. It doesn't even exist. Then all of a sudden it becomes arousing. And then right. there's the shame. Like somehow you're a bad person experiencing this kind of pleasure right and and how it worked for me as well and how, how it happens for a lot of people is that I started to feel like I wasn't turned on by any of those mild scenes that I started with I had to seek out harder clips and yeah porn makes you up the ante doesn't it it did and it's like a, you know people often refer to it as a gateway drug and it, it kind of works that way for people who feel like they can't turn away from it um, you start seeking harder clips and, and you know, new novelty plays a big role in that. So I needed to, f- to be shocked in times and to feel just the intensity that I got the first time I watched it. And, and that didn't really work if I was just watching mild scenes anymore. Softcore definitely wouldn't get me off. What's fascinating about you to me is, well, many things, but first is that women generally aren't as visually wired as men. Like I can watch porn and I laugh. It's just funny to me. I literally do not get aroused by anything visual. For me, it's all about the smell. I got to smell something, right? Right. And so it's fascinating that you, it was the visual stimuli that really triggered you. Yeah, I haven't heard that before. It was certainly the visual stimuli. Although, you know, I could work out a fantasy in my head pretty well. Right, because they do say that women, when they do consume porn, more often consume it with a partner, unlike your experience, and that they prefer the story that goes Mm -hmm. with it, right? Whereas men are happy to look at pornography where even the faces aren't even in there. They don't even need the faces. Right. Um, but in your case, you could fantasize the story. I could. And a lot of times when I was watching porn with a partner, I was too ashamed to watch the kind of porn that I would watch in private. So I would often watch porn clips that I thought they would like, things that would turn them on. Even if I wasn't actually getting turned on by it, I just thought, you know, it was kind of I got into this role of performing for the man what I thought he wanted and what he wanted to watch. Well, also, that's probably what you learned from porn about sex, that it's a performance, because pornography is not real sex. I mean, it's a performance, right? Yeah, and I think that that's the danger in young people watching porn these days is they start to perform in bed. They don't explore according to what they like or, you know, what feels good to them. They think that they have to do things a certain way based on what they've seen. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what was the pivotal moment when you knew you had to fix this? 
You know, a lot of times people ask me what my bottom was, you know, the thing that forced me to turn around. Um, but I didn't have one low point. I feel like it was a gradual progression of just feeling stuck and feeling lonely for a really long time. I got to a point where it became easier to flirt with somebody than to make conversation. It was easier to have sex with somebody than to be their friend. And mm. I never felt this true intimacy or connection with another person. And I really missed that. Anytime I felt like I was caring about somebody or they cared about me, that all just seemed too scary. I needed there to be this wall between me and another person, just like there was always a wall between me and the computer computer screen. And when did you realize this was a problem and maybe you should I would, work on changing? I'd say in my late 20s, it started to become pretty clear to me. Okay, everybody, she looks like she's in her early 20s right now. Okay, <laughs> continue. <Thank> you. <laughs> and, you know, I'd sabotage yet another relationship where I felt like I could care about this person, but that was all too scary. And I just felt like I was too aware of this pattern that was happening in my life. And I'd felt so ashamed and so alone for so long. And I thought, okay, I just need to change this. And so my 30th birthday was coming up and I thought, okay, what better time to do it than now? I want that decade to be better than the last. I need to make some serious changes in my life. Okay, so we're going to go to break. And when we come back, I want to hear what you did. And also, let's give some advice to people who either may be suffering from this or be living with a spouse or partner who has some kind of porn addiction and it's affecting their relationship. Let's talk about it when we come back. I'm with Erica Garza, the author of Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Wells Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel's got the news. AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. Make sure you follow me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. The handle's all the same, just DR, the brief thing for Dr. Dr. Wendy Walsh. My guest, Erica Garza, is an author who has written for Time, Glamour, Health, Bust, Good Housekeeping, The Cut, uh, and on and on and on. But her new book, her first book actually, is a very personal story. It is called Getting Off. One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. Erica, you're very brave to tell this story. First of all, I want to know what the reaction has been to the book. The reaction has been overwhelmingly positive, and I'm very lucky and so grateful for that. I was preparing myself for some backlash and, you know, for my parents to break down and oh. tell me they were so upset. You know, all the, the worst case scenarios ran through my head, and everyone has been so supportive. You know, I think everyone is just understanding that this is a story that needs to be told and especially when it comes to my parents who I mentioned I think they knew that this was a big part of my healing process writing this book mm -hmm. and they're just proud that I was able to get through it and and share well, that with I'm other very people. proud of you if that helps thank you <laughs> so um if the American Psychological Association says nine percent of people who use pornography say that they cannot stop let us talk to that population what did you do to change your porn addiction habit? I'd say the first and the biggest game changer for me was talking about it, was mm. breaking the silence because it was something that I felt so ashamed about. Like I was more broken than anybody else. And if anybody found this out about me, they would want nothing to do with me. And it was something to, to keep 
a part of yourself hidden like that um, is just, it's such a disservice to yourself. Who did you tell first? So the first person I told was the man who eventually became my husband. Aww. And so at my 30th birthday, I decided to take this big trip to Bali, sort of inspired by Eat, Pray, Love, which I just <laughs> read. And, you know, I had this mission to just take care of myself and do things differently, just spend time by myself. And I was doing a lot of yoga and meditating, and it's so beautiful there. And you can just spend lots of time on your own just just chilling out in a, in a yoga studio or in the rice fields. And um, I was in that kind of clear-headed space when I met my husband at a yoga class. Just like Eat, Pray, Love. You met I him know. in Bali? Yes, I know. Yeah, I'm, Joey, <laughs> I'm booking a trip to Bali. I was going to do Thailand. I'm doing Bali now. You got to do it. Um, it's beautiful. Okay. <laughs> and so I will go so far as to say... This was the beginning of you having a truly intimate relationship with somebody by exposing this part of yourself. Exactly. And, you know, he was also on his own path to recovery. He's a recovering drug addict. And so he was also on a similar kind of journey of just taking care of himself and doing things differently. So we were able to, we were able to meet each other on the same path and hold each other in that space and just be vulnerable and real. And so I took a chance and told him that, you know, I thought that I was a sex and porn addict and... He didn't run away, and it felt so good to be Well, able... I just want to say that heterosexual men usually do not run away from women who call themselves a sex addict. <laughs> just want to be clear. Don't mean to make light of your situation here, but that's what happened. That is a valid point. Um, so luckily he hung in there. Good guy. He hung in there, yeah. He was willing to see it through. But, I mean, for you, so your sexual experience, how did it change when you didn't have the assistance of pornography? I could relax a little more oh. and be present, I guess. I just wasn't stuck in my head. I wasn't just, you know, being like a like a machine because oftentimes I felt like I was just caught up in these mechanical movements and just zoning out and not really being present to these experiences that were so fulfilling. You know, I'd let so many experiences just pass me by instead of enjoying them. So I was able to really just enjoy myself a little more and be real with another person and allow myself to be vulnerable. And it just didn't feel so lonely anymore. And that was the biggest changer for me. Big change for me was connecting with another person. And I'd been missing out on that for a really long time. Was it difficult to get off a porn addiction? Yes. Absolutely. Tell you me know, what your strategies. Like, did you have some behavioral techniques? Like when you had that impulse to go reach for the remote control, you did what? I tried a lot of different things. So I, I stepped away. First of all, I tried to get myself away from all of the, the atmosphere that supported that. So being alone, watching porn in a dark bedroom, you know, like go outside, you know, do something else. But also, you know, I started to really pay attention to why I'd reach for those things in the mm -hmm. first place. Right. What were the cues, in right? investigating, you know, when I was 12 years old and I first started reaching for this as a crush, what was going on? Like, what can I do to take care of that 12-year-old girl who still lived inside me and still felt insecure? And so I tried a lot of different things. You know, yoga was one of those things to just kind of pay attention to the mess in my mind and the mm -hmm. kind of things I was telling myself. Meditation is fantastic. Erica, they're making us go to a break, but can you stay for one more segment? Because this is yeah. so darn interesting. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. My guest, Erica Garza, is a recovering porn addict, and she's going to tell us how you can feel better if it's affecting your relationship as well. This is Dr. Wendy Walsh on KFIM 640. Leah Perel's got the news. KFI AM 640, Dr. Wendy Walsh here with my guest, writer Erica Garza, author of her first book, Getting Off, her memoir on sex addiction. 
Uh, so, you were about to tell me something that caused a big change in you. So, I, I should say, I, I, you know, I said that I met my husband and I told him that I was a sex addict. And oftentimes when I say that, there's a part of me that's like, oh, you're making it sound like you were saved by a man, you know? And I want to make it clear for people who are suffering, if they don't have, you know, a romance going on and there's not a partner they could tell that they're a sex addict or porn addict to, you can make that sort of confession at a 12-step meeting. I think that that's a great place to start. Mm -hmm. Or with a therapist. Or with a therapist, absolutely. Um, But I do think the main point there is being able to reveal that part of yourself that you may be keeping hidden and, and scared to tell other people. And I, you know, I often tell people who ask me, you know, where should I go for help? I say 12 step meeting, but that's not the only thing that's out there. And for me, you know, 12 step was just one of many of the different things that I tried. Um, so being in a healthy relationship really helped me doing yoga and meditating and paying attention to my head, um, 12 step, going to therapy, all of those things were, you know, part of the process. And I think that it takes, trying a lot of different methods to find what works for you. And sometimes it's the combination of all of those different things. You know, we think that behavioral change is all about willpower, but willpower has nothing to do with it. It's about changing the schema and being aware of your cues. For instance, I have a friend who's a therapist and specializes in, she's a hip, hypnotherapist as well as being a psychotherapist, and she specializes in helping people quit smoking. And the first thing she does is make them move all the furniture around in their living room to different places because it is just such a habit that you walk into the room at the set time of the day and you sit in a certain chair and your ashtray's right there. So if if only you have to stumble around looking for your chair, that's enough to jolt you into weight. It's Mm -hmm. a cue, right, that I want a cigarette. And so I think that we all, no matter what behavior we're trying to curtail, need to look at the schema in our life that set up the cues and then be aware of the cues, which sounds like you did very well. Mm-hmm. What about relationships do you think where one partner is addicted and it's affecting their own romantic relationship? There's research to show that when the man is addicted to pornography, uh, women report uh, greater feelings of depression, anxiety, and low self-esteem. Um, you know, I'm going to say they need couples therapy, but what can you say to the sex addict or the porn addict? I would say couples therapy as well. I think that, you know, if if it's too intense to have that sort of conversation in private, just the two of you, having another person there who specializes in these kind of difficult conversations and having a safe space like that to talk about these delicate subjects can be incredibly helpful. And to just be patient and and make that space in that room for the other person to be vulnerable and open up and to discover that there is probably something underneath that. The, the, they're reaching for those, the porn and the sex and, and those compulsions because they're trying to, you know, hide something or push something else down that needs to come up. And so to talk about that thing can be tremendously helpful. You have, have not completely abstained from porn. You still use it recreationally, but not addictively. Did I say that correctly? Right. So I took about six months off from watching porn completely. And in that time, I had all sorts of ideas about what I thought recovery was supposed to look like. And I was going to 12 step meetings and, you know, thinking that I had to be in this strict monogamous relationship and just being very strict with myself. And then it started to feel inauthentic after a while. And I felt like I was cutting off a part of my sexuality and that that wasn't really the answer. And I realized that I still wanted to be an experimental, open-minded sexual person. And, you know, I just didn't want to hurt people you, that I loved. And, and you didn't want it to 
run you. And yeah. You wanted to run your sex life. I wanted to be the person to make that choice. Exactly. And I also didn't want to feel bad about those things either. And shame was such a huge part of my addiction. I didn't want that to run the show anymore. So I think it's important to get to a place of balance. And I think that's possible. Sex addiction is not like drug or alcohol addiction. You don't just give it up completely. That's not living either or happiness either. So it's all about finding a place where you can have a healthy relationship well, like with it. with an eating disorder, you still have to go to the refrigerator three times a day and walk that tiger, right? So right. you just have to change your relationship with food. And it sounds like you changed your relationship with sex. I did. And it's an ongoing effort. You know, yeah. it's going to take work and there will be stumbles and triggers along the way. But I'm much more aware of it at this point. I need to ask this because I'm very curious. So you mentioned that, you know, at the beginning, uh, when you were a young girl, uh, you consumed the kind of pornography that we, we would call soft porn. And that it kept getting more and more severe, more hardcore. Now, then you took six months off. Then when you went back to porn... What kind of porn appealed to you? I would say I went back to some of the softer stuff, actually. Oh, and yeah, and I don't use it, you know, I don't use it the way that I used to. And I don't feel like I need to. And I felt like just taking that break and starting to work on my issues and, you know, investigating, like I said, why I'd reach for those things in the first place. It, it got me to a place where I just didn't need to rely on it the way that I needed to anymore. And I could just kind of have fun with it, which I feel like I do that now. And you're in a happy marriage. You have a two-year-old. Does your husband like pornography? He does. Oh, yeah. thank goodness. Because I don't know. <laughs> that would be a problem. It would be a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I just want to close this little section about pornography by saying that I am very neutral on pornography. I both see the benefits in helping long-term monogamy. And I also see the dangerous parts, I've, certainly for young developing minds. It's not the place to learn about sexuality. There are plenty of other places. And it's also, you know, devoid of relational aspects, the intimacy piece, all the other pieces that lead up to the plumbing that you witness on porn. And then, of course, I have some concerns about the porn industry itself and its treatment of women and some of the harder core stuff and how women are victimized in pornography. And so that's, you know, as feminists, it's a little hard on me. On the other hand, you know, there are plenty of marriages that have been saved because of pornography to keep it interesting. So it's, it's like a double-edged sword, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's like the walk that you have with, yeah. with both things. Um, in closing thoughts, Erica, what, uh, what advice do you give to somebody who's, who feels that they may be addicted to pornography. I just want to say you are not alone. That's mm. the biggest thing I can tell you. Um, you know, I've been there. A lot of us have been there. And I think that that's really important for a person to just take in when you're feeling like you're the only person going through this. It's just, just know there's other people out there going through it too. Mm, well said. Thank you so much for coming to the studio. Thank you. And gentlemen, I know you're listening and I know you're wondering. So this is radio, so you can't see. Yes, she's hot. Okay, enough said. <laughs> <laughs> now she's going to me too me after this. But I do suggest you get the book because it is a really deep exploration. Uh, the book is called Getting Off, One Woman's Journey Through Sex and Porn Addiction. Thank you so much, Erica Garza, for coming into the studio. Thank you. This is KFI AM 640. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. Larry Perel's got the news for us. Oh, help me, please, doctor. I'm damaged. Hey, if I am 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. You know, I'm always jealous because it seems like the other hosts on KFI get to give away money all the time, but... 
they let me give away stuff every once in a while. Like, if you're around this Wednesday, yep, this Wednesday, April 25th at 7 p.m., do you want to come by the iHeart Theater in L.A.? Well, you can win a pair of passes to the iHeart Country Album Release Party featuring Keith Urban live in the iHeart Radio Theater. It's really tall, small and intimate. It'll be cool. And it's this, uh, you got to be available this Wednesday at 7 p.m. So if you would like to win these, uh, pick up the phone right now. Joey's going to answer it and you'll win. Call 1-800-520-1KFI. That's 1-800-520-1534. Okay. Uh, Royal Wedding Watch. I'm a little obsessed with this wedding, if you haven't figured out. And if you don't know who's getting married on May 19th, it is American, Meghan Markle, and Prince Harry. Prince Harry has a really long name. It's actually Prince Henry Charles Albert David of Wales, but they call him Prince Henry. He's sort of the wild and crazy naughty son of Princess Diana, if you're keeping them straight. Um, Why do we care here in America about this wedding? Well, Meghan Markle is ours. She's even from Los Angeles. She's biracial. Interesting. It's going to shake up the royal family. She also is three years older than him. She's 36, and she's divorced. Divorced. She's a real modern woman. So the wedding will be live at 4 a.m. Pacific. I have set my alarm on my iPhone for May 19th at 4 a.m. Because all I have to do is roll over and hit the remote, right? And uh, it's going to be live. I think it's on PBS. Oh, Joey, would you check that for me? Yeah, I think it's PBS. Okay, so we do know they're not inviting any political people. 1,200 people will be there. There will be no Donald Trump. And his good friend Barack Obama and Michelle are not going to be there either. So um, this wedding isn't super important because, and I think, you know, the queen had to actually give permission back in March, and she did. Um, But... It's uh, like, for one thing, he's fifth in line to the throne. There are so many people that need to be beheaded in order for us to have a black queen. (laughs) Uh, I I mean, we can hope. No, we shouldn't hope that people die. That's a terrible thing to say. Um, So here's here's the lineup to the throne. So Prince Charles, uh, Harry's father, has to die. Then Harry's older brother, William, has to die. Then William's two children, Prince George and Princess Charlotte, as well as their third child, who I think is a newborn or still in the oven right now. So that's five people who have to be beheaded before we will ever see a black queen. Despite that, Twitter is abuzz with hashtag black princess. Although I must be accurate, she will not be a princess. Meghan Markle will be Duchess, Duchess Meghan Markle. Okay. Um, so she's going to break things up. I think it's kind of exciting. She had a bachelorette party. Well, it's rumored, rumored, but then it was printed in the New York times. I don't know, uh, that she had a spa themed hen do. That's the British term for bachelorette party, a hen do at the Soho farmhouse, which is a countryside arm of the members only Soho house. Hmm. Apparently she had that in March. Um, There will not be bridesmaids. Uh, Royal weddings do not have a bunch of, you know, 20 and 30-something women clad in long gowns. There will be adorable little children all dressed up and throwing rose petals and being the ring bearer, etc. 
Uh, right now, the British newspapers are in a state of great excitement over the fact that four-year-old Prince George and two-year-old Princess Charlotte are likely to reprise their roles from Aunt Pippa's wedding last summer. Remember that one? He was a page boy and page girl. Um, of course, the third child will be less than two months old. Yeah, still in the oven. Um, no, out. Uh, do Harry and Meghan want children? Sounds like it. In their post-engagement interview for the BBC, Prince Harry said, of course, one step at a time, and hopefully we'll start a family in the near future. Well, I just want to say something. Megan, you are 36. You want to get on this. Here's a little math for you. The height of female uh, fertility is about the age of 20. It hovers around there for almost a decade. Uh, Takes a dive at the age of 30. Falls off a cliff at 35. What I'm saying is we need to see royal babies with some melanin. Come on. We want more black duchesses. You will be the first. Um, Anyway, it's exciting. It's weddings. Who doesn't get excited about a wedding? Even though there are more single adults in America now than married. And it's not that people aren't coupling up. It's not that the divorce rate is just super, super, super high. It's just that society's gotten a little loose and people can cohabitate and... Women need marriage less. They need marriage not so much for financial stuff. Although I do want to say that we do not have enough cultural supports for mothers yet. And so if women think that their life is going to be the same financially once they become a mother, (laughs) you know what I say when people say, oh, women make 77 cents on a man's dollar. I'm like, yeah, but if she's a mother, she has to take that 77 cents and hire a whole nother other woman. So basically, we're making like 37 or 38 cents on the male dollar. I got a little feminist rant there. All right. I'm looking forward to the wedding. I love weddings, even if they will mean eventual divorce. Not these guys. Not the royals, of course. They can't divorce, can they? These guys are just going to have to figure out a way to work it out. Although Princess Diana divorced the father, Charles, of Henry. All right, so I want to remind you, you can follow me on social media. Dr. Wendy Walsh is the handle everywhere, just DR. I am here every Sunday from 4 to 6, talking about everything psychology, and especially the science of relationships. And I'm here every Wednesday in the 1 o'clock hour on The Gary and Shannon Show. And that brings this episode of The Dr. Wendy Walsh Show to a close. Thank you so much for being with me. It's always a pleasure and an honor for me to be here with you. This has been the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Mo Kelly is next.